Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were both pastors and theologians in Germany about a hundred years ago. Bonhoeffer was invited to London to serve two German-speaking churches, and so he sojourned across the English Channel and began teaching and preaching and visiting the sick. One day, Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to his friend and mentor, Karl Barth, back in Germany and described the calm of parish ministry and how much he enjoyed this pleasant pastoral work. Now, typically, Barth would have relished reading this letter about Bonhoeffer's meaningful work amongst the people, but it was 1933, and Barth was deeply embroiled in speaking out against Germany's Third Reich. And so Bart wrote back a terse letter to his mentee. You are a German. The house of your church is on fire. You must return to your post by the next ship. In his book, A House United, Reverend Alan Hilton argues that a deep sense of polarization exists in our country today. Sometimes, he says, it feels like our nation's house is on fire. Because we have all lived through a presidential election cycle during this past week and over these past months, we are all deeply aware of the divisiveness among us. Perhaps you have a close family member or a dear friend or a next-door neighbor with whom you vehemently disagree on politics, on social issues, or on religion. But really, is it any worse today than it used to be? Hilton cites a study in his book that really got my attention. He said that 50 years ago, back in 1960, pollsters asked Americans, would you be displeased if your son or your daughter married someone from the opposite political party? And about 4.5% in 1960 said, yes, I would be displeased if my son or daughter married someone from the opposite political party. But in 2010, that number had risen to 43%. Almost half of all parents don't want to raise a toast at their child's wedding if it means welcoming an in-law into the family fold who holds polar political views. But our polarization, it is not limited to politics. Churches also fight about what it is that God wants us to do on a host of moral and spiritual issues. A friend of mine was deeply involved in his denomination's possible split over the issue of equal rights for people who are gay or lesbian. After a year of meetings with different religious leaders across the nation, he said to me over lunch, This has been the worst year of my life. He said, I never lost more sleep over any other issue in 30 years of ministry. My sister-in-law told me not long ago that she had discovered a new song by a popular Christian rock artist, and it was hitting the top of the charts, and she loved the deep love and compassion of the song, and she wanted to teach it to the praise band that she leads at her church, but her pastor forbid it. He thought it was offensive. We Christians, we are not immune to a good church fight. Today's scripture comes from the Gospel of John. The church is only about a hundred years old when this gospel is written. 
and already division has crept into the community that was created to follow this one named Jesus. Amazing how fast the church could split into camps based on a variety of beliefs and practices, but they did. So as John writes the story of Jesus's final moments on this earth with his disciples, he paints this scene where Jesus is saying goodbye, farewell to his friends. Scholars even call it the farewell address. But Jesus goes back and forth between praying for the disciples and talking to the disciples. And in this final prayer, Jesus prays that once he has departed from the earth, that they may all be one. He prays that the world will be a better place because he, the Son of God, was here on earth. Notice that Jesus does not pray for them to all understand. And he doesn't pray that they will all have courage. He prays for unity. And his prayer is not just for those original 12 disciples, but for all those who will claim God as revealed in Jesus Christ in the generations to come. It is no accident that this phrase, that they may all be one, is the central window in the George Hamilton Combs Chapel. This chapel was built and dedicated in 1962 as a place of unity for all people. By 1960, our nation had been through a generation that had endured two world wars. It no longer seemed to matter after that if you were Lutheran or Baptist. What mattered was that you were loved by God. And so there was this movement in our nation and in our world called ecumenism. To be ecumenical was to believe in God's economy. And in God's economy, all belong to one household of faith. Our denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, became a leader in this ecumenical movement. And our pastors, Combs and Grafton and Bash, were devoted to this idea of Christian unity. In fact, this chapel was intentionally designed as a place where interfaith marriages could happen. We sometimes forget today that people used to think it was scandalous for a Catholic to marry a Protestant. But my daughter often jokes that she knew her grandmother was becoming progressive when her grandmother could say the word Catholic without whispering. On the week that our Combs Chapel was dedicated, a different speaker from a different religious tradition spoke here every night for a week. And this tradition continued throughout Lent and for many years. Time Magazine even wrote an article that cited this congregation as an example of Christian unity, including even brothers and sisters in other traditions like rabbis. And the Kansas City Star captured a photo of the first time that a Catholic priest gave a sermon in a Protestant church in the United States, but perhaps in the world, and it was here in our brand new chapel. In gratitude, the local bishop arranged for our pastor 
to meet the Pope on his next visit to Europe. But this is no longer our divisiveness. We have our own struggles today. We have the interfaith struggle, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, and we have the struggle of how to relate to those with no faith at all. And we still squabble inside of Christianity on what is truth and what matters most to God. Reproductive rights, the care of God's earth, the feeding of the poor, the welcoming of the stranger, or who can love who. Our fights are still fierce. It is easy to feel guilty for failing to accomplish this oneness that Jesus prayed for in his final days on the earth. Have we let God down? But it is also important to realize that when Jesus prayed that they may all be one, he was not issuing an instruction manual or a lesson plan. He was praying. In a way, the disciples were simply overhearing Jesus' prayer to God. Jesus prays, dear God, make them one, make them unified, make them share our heart of oneness and unity. Each time we come into the chapel, we hear Jesus' prayer for all of us who claim to follow him. Jesus prays for us that they may all be one. And how does God answer? I read a story recently that captured what I imagine Jesus was praying for. In 1983, an accomplished professional piano player named Daryl Davis played a gig in a lounge. Although Daryl played rock and roll and blues and swing, this night Daryl played jazz. And when the band took a break, one of the patrons in the lounge approached Daryl with awe, saying, Gosh, I've never seen anyone play like Jerry Lee Lewis as well as you do. And Daryl said, Well, Jerry Lee Lewis is a friend of mine, and we learned from the same jazz greats. This flabbergasted the patron, and so he invited Daryl to share a drink with him during the break. And when the two sat down together, the patron who loved music confessed, this is the first time in my life I have ever shared a drink with a black man. Daryl was startled, and so he invited the man to more conversation. And finally, the music lover explained that he was a member of the KKK. This honest conversation was a turning point for both men. The man eventually resigned from the KKK, and Daryl became a teacher and a mentor in race relations. He engaged in civil dialogue with those who were avowed members of various hate groups, and on multiple occasions, members of the KKK came to Daryl and turned in their Klan robes as a sign of their transformation. Some say that Daryl converted them to a new way of seeing, but Daryl said no. They converted themselves. What happens within the human spirit that enables us to see another person differently? What happens within the human soul that allows us to listen to those with whom we vehemently disagree? 
In an interview, commentator David Brooks cited a recent study about how much we trust one another. He said that two generations ago, when, you, when someone was asked, do you trust your neighbors, 60% said, yeah, I trust my neighbors. But today, only 33% of us say, yeah, we trust our neighbors. And among millennials and Generation Z, it is only 19%. Brooks said, if a church loses faith in God, it collapses. And if a nation loses trust in each other, the nation collapses. So what about Jesus' prayer that you and I, as his disciples, become one? You know, I have read this passage from John 17 hundreds of times over the last several weeks. Sometimes it reads like a circle. Listen to the entire request that Jesus makes to God. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may all be one as we are one. What is the basis of this oneness? It is not agreement. It is God. As God and Jesus are one, so we are one with God. As God is one with humanity, so humanity is one with each other. Our unity is not based on agreement. It is based on God's love. This window expresses God's deep longing for us to reveal a holy love within the human community. By God's design, you are part of that love. I am part of that love. And every person on the planet belongs inside of God's deep, genuine love. Those of you who have grandchildren know that your grandchildren, well, they got other grandparents. And sometimes grandparents compete with each other. But then one day you wake up and you realize we love the same precious little children. And so we have already a common bond. And the same can be true in a country. We vote differently from our neighbors, but we all vote because we love our country. We participate in something larger than ourselves. We partake of God's love. We participate together in an experience of human community. You know, someone asked me one time at a wedding, when that says there in the window that they may all be one, are they talking about the bride and the groom? And I laughed. It was a fair question because we have married thousands of couples in that stunning chapel. But I said, no, it's not about marriage. It's about the whole human family, that we may be as one people beloved by God, that we may love and respect one another here on earth so that it will have been worth it for Jesus to walk among us. But maybe I was wrong. Because a few years ago, I did a wedding here in the chapel for a couple 
She, he was Christian. She was Hindu. Both of them lived out of town, but for months we met in person and over the telephone because the bride's parents were appalled that their daughter would marry an American white Christian. They refused to attend the wedding. They threw up roadblocks everywhere. They were both doctors. They had assimilated into the culture, but they did not want their daughter to marry a white Christian American man. Why not let mom and dad arrange a proper Hindu wedding with a man from their own homeland? Then came the day of the wedding, and on a late-night flight arrived mom and dad and all the siblings dressed in traditional Hindu dress, and they attended the wedding. And I realized that they were there, not because they agreed, but because they loved that is what Jesus' prayer is all about.